Hello boys and girls and welcome to another episode of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I'm Troy and here's my co-host Equal in Billing. Um, I'm Brian and boys and girls, I haven't heard you say boys and girls, I, I feel like you're, you're going a bit of school teacher-esque there. Yeah, back to my old school teacher days, I think. I think you are. It's going to be a bit confusing today because we have another Brian, right? And for those of you that are, that are tuning in for the first time, no, it's uh, not Brian Houston. It's an even better Brian than that. And we have a special guest, don't we, Brian? Do you want to talk about the other Brian? Yes, I I have great pleasure in talking about the other Brian for several reasons. One of them that he is spelt correctly, the B-R-I-A-N. And I'm sure that this Brian also gets uh, lots of emails like I do, Dear Brain. Uh, It's it's a fantastic (laughs) thing. But um, Brian McLaren, we have Brian McLaren, who is a celebrated author, um, ex- uh, fundamentalist uh, like like us, um, but also for me, uh, Brian holds a, a really special place in my life in that probably 15 odd years ago, I was introduced to, to Brian as a speaker and author and uh, the emerging church movement was something obviously I've spoken about in other podcasts and it was something that uh, I really held dearly to and it really helped me, I guess, deal with some of the trauma of being in the fundamentalist scene. So, we, we look forward to unpacking that more, but just want to welcome you, Brian McLaren. Well, thanks very much. And uh, yeah, so so glad to be with you and so glad that we're yeah, talking about ways of living beyond fundamentalism. Yeah, now, Brian McLaren, and I'm going to call you Brian McLaren, so as not to be confused <laughs> okay. with the other Brian over here. So, Brian McLaren, you were a teenage fundamentalist, yes or no? Uh, uh, yes, definitely was. I was raised... And uh, some people have heard of the Plymouth Brethren, very conservative Christian group. And then in my teenage years, I got involved in the Jesus movement and became kind of a card-carrying Pentecostal charismatic. And uh, and shortly after leaving my teenage years, I was introduced to Calvinism and Reformed theology. So I took tour stops in all of those different sectors of fundamentalism. It, it's really interesting, Brian, the... Um, The Jesus movement was something that when I was in the Assemblies of God in Australia was seen as a bit of a a counterculture, uh, I guess, looser, hippier type movement. And but you're saying it was a bit more fundamentalist. Well, you know, it was in fact, when you say that, Brian, it brings back a memory. So um, I was kind of on my way out of Christian faith as a young teenager. And then I ended up having this very powerful kind of spiritual experience. And the Jesus movement was kind of the context for my early growth. And I was attracted to it being a countercultural thing. But I remember in the, in the late 1970s, um, here in the United States, a fellow named Ronald Reagan ran for president. And I read this article that all the Jesus people were voting for Reagan. And I just thought, that's crazy. Why would anybody do that? But it, it turned out that the, well, w- one way to say it is that when fundamentalism is part of something, it might flower out and extend beyond that. But very often it's kind of like uh, an elastic band. It snaps back. And uh, I felt like what happened by the late 1970s is that uh, it was snapping back to a, a, a kind of fundamentalism again. Always coming back, isn't it? It's uh, Yeah, that is part of the challenge. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, where did you come from? I mean, what was the sort of environment that you were involved in? What really shaped you in those early years? Yeah. So uh, I grew up on the East Coast of the United States. I was born in New York and lived in the state of Maryland, right near Washington, D.C. Um, my parents were wonderful people. They acted much better than their theology uh, uh, would have suggested. Uh, for example, uh, my, my first real conflict, I think, with Christianity was over science. I was super interested in science, and uh, evolution made a whole lot of sense to me, and the idea that the earth was 6,000 years old just sounded silly. Even, I, I mean, literally when I was eight or nine years old and I heard that, I just thought, come on, you, who are you kidding? Um, and my dad was a doctor, so he had a scientific background, and my parents uh, you know, they were nervous. They were worried about me. They gave me creationist books, but they also made sure that I got to 
the library and got to read the things that I was interested in too. And um, I, you know, in, in the United States in the early 1960s, uh, segregation was still a thing. And a lot of churches were segregated, even as the government was trying to desegregate. And my parents were also very different in that way and that they were very, very committed to building relationships across races. And they thought that segregation was wrong. And, um, and so uh, I was, I was fortunate in that way. You know, my parents were raised, both of them were raised in fundamentalist settings, but they had a, a liberality of spirit, if I could say it that way, that went farther than, than their theology did. Um, but I, uh, my plan was to be a college English teacher. I loved literature. And uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, my wife and I started this little fellowship that became a, a, a little church. And I ended up leaving teaching to be the pastor. I was a pastor of that church for 24 years. But the fact that I'd never really sat that easily with fundamentalism from the start and the fact that my background was higher education and especially in literature, which exposes you to a wide array of viewpoints and empathy for people of many different cultures and religions and 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 historical periods and so on um yeah my my uh faith always didn't quite fit and so that issue of uh having a christian identity but not feeling that i fit has really been part of my really been part of my whole life and all of my work as a pastor and uh i left the pastorate uh, and when I started writing books, and and so I've been a writer and speaker and an activist for the last, uh, I guess, fifteen or sixteen years. So, did you take on this label of progressive Christian? Because that's what we hear when we hear about Brian McLaren. You know, he's he's one of the progressives. Is that something you're comfortable with, or or not? Sure. Yeah. Sure. I'm comfortable with it. I I, I know that some people use progressive as an insult. Um, but that's fine. I, I mean, if that's what they want to say, if that's what they want to call me, that that fits. I believe in moving forward. I I don't think the golden days are behind us. I think there are better. Uh, I think our better hopes are ahead, and um, and so yeah, that's a fine fine term. So I, I guess Brian, like if if you look at your um, your books that you've written over the last twenty five odd years, they they're really exploratory books, and they're they're talking about things like you know the the church on the other side doing ministry in a in a postmodern matrix, right through to your latest book, which we've we've both read, which is Do I Stay Christian? Um, and that's a you know a guide, it's a guide to doubters, the disappointed, and the the disillusioned. So you don't shy away from those hard questions, I guess, of, of belief and um, identification and, and faith at the core. But what was it about this latest book, Do I Stay a Christian, that pushed you to write it? Yeah. You know, um, Brian, I wish it were true that I didn't shy away from difficult subjects. But, you know, in a lot of my earlier books, I did. I still was trying to keep the favor of gatekeepers who uh, you know, I, I still was trying to impress them that I was uh, a good guy. Um, but something happened to me, really, I'll be very frank, it happened to me in large part because of the election of Donald Trump in, here in the U.S. in 2016. When I watched white evangelicals line up to support Donald Trump, uh, who was just obviously a liar and a narcissist and an a, a, a unhealthy human being, uh, and and deeply immature human being, uh, I just thought, why did I ever try to earn their respect? I, I why did, why did I hold back on some things? And I saw so many people uh, who were just basically done with the whole thing, um, including surprising numbers of clergy who would come to me and say, "I'm you know leaving the pastorate, and I think I'm leaving Christianity too." Um, and so it just seemed to me this was a subject that needed to be addressed. And I didn't want to write a book convincing people to stay Christian. I, frankly, I think there are a lot of people who cannot stay Christian under any circumstances. The religion is destroying them and they need to get away from it. Um, uh, and other people are trying to stay in without losing their integrity. And so I wanted to just kind of go into that problem and, and inhabit that problem and, and try to write something helpful. 
I think for our audience, you know, we have a quite a large spectrum or people on, on you know, on, on a spectrum yes. of hardcore belief, um, progressive, moderate. It's funny because I joke about the fact that progressive has replaced the word liberal. When I was a Christian, it was liberal was the dirty word and you dare not ever be liberal. So let's just change it, call it, you know, progressive and, and on we go. Because I think yes. Marcus Borg, for example, who was one of the dirty great liberals when I was hanging around, he'd be happily labeled a progressive now, I think so, still alive. But, you know, on, on the other end, we've got people that are dumb. We've got people that have stepped down into, you know, different kinds of spirituality and different kinds of, even, even atheism really, is yes, where some people yes. have landed. And so I think this is a very important book. And I think it's a very pertinent book is maybe the word I'm looking for, for our audience. And so, you know, when, when we found out you'd read, excuse me, written this book, we thought, fantastic, let's get him on. And I was late to the Brian McLaren party because I left church back in 1999 and your name had sort of filtered through, through friends and bits and pieces. I had heard your name. And so I picked up Faith After Doubt was actually mm. the first book. And I'm talking just last year. I picked up Faith After Doubt and, and I've got to say I loved it because I loved the, the framework that you had, that you created. It was very, in some ways it was similar to Richard Raw, who I know is one of your friends and we'll come back to that in a minute, but it was very similar to his idea of falling upward. Yes. Um, but it, it spoke to me, you know, the old saying, um, all frameworks are flawed, but some are useful. And it spoke yeah. to me about this way that we could track ourselves, you know, that we could track ourselves as um, hardcore fundamentalists, then becoming sort of mega church success oriented in our faith, then becoming super doubters and then becoming... Um, you know, coming through the other side of, of having some sort of faith or having at least some sort of positivity and direction. And when I read that, because I've been doing this podcast, I really, and I don't want this to turn into therapy, Brian McLaren, but um, it, it really spoke to me about where do I go? You know, I yeah. feel like I've come to the end of doubt. I've come to the end of being negative and bitter and twisted. And where do I go next? And you're book and also Richard Raw's book said there is another stage and then yeah. came this book do I stay Christian and I'm, I'm not going to let you know my um my conclusions quite yet but it was just so timely and I imagine that those two books are super timely for a lot of people let alone our audience well I hope I hope that's the case and and um as you know yeah I'm sure you can feel this but I actually uh, was writing these books kind of, I wrote the faith after doubt, knowing that my next book was going to be, do I stay Christian? And so the, each of these books sort of had a, a, a Genesis together. Um, one way to say it for people who've read faith after doubt, I, and you, by the way, just gave a superb summary of those four stages, stage one, simplicity, stage two, complexity, stage three, perplexity, and stage four, harmony or solidarity. Um, and, and, and what happens is, uh, in many ways, traditional fundamentalism was simplicity. And they said, you cannot go beyond this. You have to stay here. If you do go to anything else, it's not Christianity. Um, uh, then, uh, in many ways, the whole megachurch phenomenon is stage two complexity. Um, it, it's focused on different things. It has fundamentalism as its core. It, it very seldom really critiques or engages with fundamentalism, but it moves on to other subjects like how do I get rich or how do I uh, have a happy marriage or how do I, uh, you know, whatever. Um, uh, it, it, how do I get my political ideas to win in the world or whatever it might be. Um, and then uh, more and more people, when they graduate out of stage one or stage two, they just feel there's no place for me in Christianity. And that I think is true in a lot of places, but uh, I think what a lot of us re are realizing is that Christianity started making a whole lot more sense once we got out of stages one and stage two, once we found the freedom to ask the kind of questions uh, in stage three, and once we had the freedom to be angry, because there's a lot to be angry about. Um, uh, as you both know, the, the first third of this book, I talk as frankly as I can about a lot of Christian history and what the Christian faith has revealed about itself in its first 2000 years. And in the second part of the book, I'm not telling people, oh, it wasn't that bad. Don't take it seriously. I'm telling people 
never stop being outraged by what uh, by by what Christianity has the harm it's done. It's done real harm, and one of my great fears is that it could even do worse harm in the future. So um, that that stage three to me is super important, and in fact. I think you become a better Christian by engaging with that kind of anger. If you want to stay Christian, of course, you're, you know, a lot of people can't and, and shouldn't and don't. Um, and then I think there's this fourth stage of kind of integration and, uh, and so on. But uh, all, all that's to say the two books really did come to being um, together. I, I think, um, Brian, when you say, you know, Christianity has the, the potential to be even more harmful in the future. I mean, one of the things that we really wanted to to ask you about was, I think it would lead to that, um, is what your reflections are on what's happening in the in Christianity in the twenty first century, and particularly that ultra conservative fundamentalist politicization of Christianity, which we def- definitely saw through Trump, but we're seeing through many other channels. So. Can you speak to us about that one? Sure, sure. Well, maybe let me make a sort of general statement first, Brian, and then uh, and then I can you know get a little more specific. What I think we should expect in the years ahead is that those ugly, angry, vicious, bigoted, earth unfriendly uh, uh, forms of Christianity are going to get worse, and they're going to get more desperate, and they're going to get more angry. And they're going to, and they're, I just think if we expect them to have hit bottom, we're going to really be disappointed. We should expect those, those areas to get worse. Those, those sectors of Christianity to get worse. They are, uh, they have, they've painted themselves into a corner and, um, you know, uh, an, an animal that's backed into a corner, any living thing that's backed into a corner then starts to fight for its survival. And you, and, and you see the claws, uh, you know, come out. But I also think because of that, I think we'll see some of the most beautiful and uh, creative expressions uh, of, of Christian faith also emerging. So part of what that says to me is I think we have to get comfortable with the opposites happening. at at the same time. Um, But here's what I I see happening. Uh, The world is changing. Technology is changing uh, uh, things for us in ways we don't even fully understand, even as we're using the technology that we're using right now. But also the climate is changing. The the environment is changing. Hundreds of years of burning fossil fuels are are catching up to us. uh, hundreds of years of funneling more and more wealth, transferring more and more wealth to the people who already have a lot of wealth and keeping the rest of the people on the margins. That's catching up to us. Hundreds and hundreds of years of racism and especially white supremacy and especially white Christian supremacy are catching up to us. And, and so the world is changing and a whole lot of people are really afraid about that. And so all they can do is imagine going backward and uh, as a result, they're drawn toward authoritarian leaders. They're drawn toward conspiracy theories that make them innocent victims and make somebody else a horrible villain. And this kind of thinking, what, what's really interesting to me is watching how this kind of re- reactionary, regressive, nostalgic thinking creates unlikely bedfellows. So what we end up having is fundamentalist Christians, and uh, let's say it this way, fundamentalist evangelicals and charismatics, and fundamentalist Russian Orthodox, uh, and fundamentalist Catholics, who used to be bitter enemies, now find themselves deep allies. And it's not just that. They're allies with atheists who are fundamentalist in the sense that they want to reassert male rule over women, and they want to reassert uh, European rule over everybody else. And so we're just seeing this strange set of fundamentalisms come together, religious fundamentalism, economic fundamentalism, political fundamentalism, educational fundamentalism. Uh, And I I, I think we should just keep our eyes open and not be naive that that's that that's going to happen and and where that leads is really really scary um especially because one of the things that all of these fundamentalisms tend to do is deny 
the seriousness of climate change and environmental overshoot, deny the seriousness of racial inequality, deny the seriousness of the concentration of wealth and power in, in a very small percentage of people's hands. And um, yeah, and, and I just don't see any way for that to be stopped easily. Yeah, look, I think we're definitely seeing all those things. I think I think that was a great summary, actually, of, of what is happening at the moment. And it's definitely a lot of fear-driven activity. Yes. And, and that's, I guess that's the scary thing, that what we saw through the pandemic, which is obviously still going, but I'm hoping we're through the worst of it, is just how much misinformation was spread through Christian fundamentalist channels. And... Given the authority that they have over their flocks, you know, they you know, whatever they say goes. So there was a, a yeah, it was frightening and, and it continues to be incredibly frightening. As a bystander looking in, I, I, I really do fear for the, I guess, those movements and what's happening with, within. When you throw Hitler and Nazism in, you've already lost the argument. But I will say that that's my fear. And I think a lot of people's fear as well with the rise of the right wing and I think last time we saw a reaction to modernity, right, a reaction to that sort of liberalism of the 20s and the 30s was the rise of fascism. And we yes. know that, you know, the church got into bed with Hitler. The church got into bed with Mussolini. The church got into bed with fascism. And I think it's interesting that we're talking about the rise of fundamentalism, you know, politically and economically to me, it just feels a lot like the 30s and 40s here, and it culminated in in a war, and that's what we're all looking at now, going, is this going to culminate in another world war? Here we go. Yes, yes. So, the, I mean, obviously we don't want to scare people and keep them from being able to sleep tonight, but I think what we're saying is uh, it, it, that there's a kind of realism that we need, and it's why a podcast like this is important to have a place for people to process to say, "I used to be part of that, and I see where it's going, and I don't want to be, I don't want to support that kind of thing anymore." And um, and and yeah, we and it's one of the reasons I I uh, I wrote this book. One of the things that has really been of interest to me, I, I talk about this in a chapter about uh, I call it constricted intellectualism. Um, I, I, I've been studying uh, sort of glitches in, in, in our psychology and glitches in our rationality. Uh, the word for this is biases and how a whole set of biases leave us really vulnerable to being manipulated by authoritarians. And when I look back, what I realize is that fundamentalism at heart is an authoritarian religious structure. And, and in Protestant fundamentalism, what is especially deceptive about it is that someone stands up and says, don't listen to me, just listen to the Bible. But what is the, the fine print behind that is listen to my interpretation of the Bible. And if you don't, you'll hear, I'll take out the rhetorical heavy artillery and I will, you know, tear you to shreds. Um, and, uh, and so you just see it's a kind of smiling religious authoritarianism that smiles as long as you agree, but as soon as you question or disagree, uh, you, you see a different side. That's one of the reasons why I think fundamentalism is so useful to authoritarians. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just this, it delivers an audience to an authoritarian leader and it makes everybody feel they're doing God's work when they when, when they follow the authoritarian leader's bidding. So you mentioned that, um, talking about biases there, let, let me um, highlight your podcast. I think it's called Learning to See, is that what it's called? L learning How to See, yes. Learning How to See, yeah, which is where you actually unpack this idea of biases. Yes. And Yeah, so I just want to highlight that to people if they're looking for a good podcast and want to hear more of your voice, that's a good place to stop. Now, I think, Brian, you, you just spoke about those... Uh... Uh, I guess those scary people that we've all brushed up against, and you talk in chapter four about Christianity's loyal company men. Yes, I, I, I recently watched The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Um, yes, and great movie, you know, and it, and it has Pat Robinson, it has Jerry Falwell, it has those company men in there that certainly do reinforce the rhetoric and the narrative of fundamentalism, and 
quite corrupt in the in the words of your good friend Frank Schaefer, um, who came on and he he didn't hold back in his thoughts around those people, as you can That's imagine. Right. He referred to them as being part of a an organised criminal enterprise. Is what yes. he actually yes. said. Yes, he, he absolutely yes. did. We loved we loved our chat with Frank. But I guess you know, on a smaller scale, we we come up against these people and have come up against these people in our journeys through fundamentalism that do continue to reinforce that that narrative, and it, it can be very intimidating. Those people, I think, do drive people out of Christianity. They drive people away and give them a reason to never, ever come back because they're like, I ain't going back to something that makes me feel that way, that, you know, apportions all the blame on me. Can you elaborate, I guess, a bit more from your perspective on this type of person and why, you know, these people are really a reason to reject Christianity? Yes. So there's a strange phenomenon um, among pastors, I was a pastor for 24 years and you guys have had, you know, you, you have your own story and background, but there's a strange phenomenon among pastors. And I don't know if narcissists are attracted to the pastorate or if the pastorate helps people become narcissists, but there is this weird thing that happens. And it, it's this symbiotic relationship where a congregation praises their pastor and the pastor praises the congregation, um, and and they get into this mutual appreciation society, where the, and they both profit by it. Um, they're both built up by this kind of shared narcissism. So somehow, uh, pastors and congregations end up in this kind of narcissistic dance. And one of the, uh, if you talk to a psychologist or a psychiatrist about narcissism, they'll tell you that a narcissist feels a sense of entitlement, that, they're, that, that they deserve everything, and a lack of empathy. So they deserve everything, and other people can suffer for their ability to get everything. And, um, and one other thing they say about narcissists is that they can't distinguish themselves from something external. And so when you think about it in fundamentalism, uh, we think we're talking about God and we're talking about the church and that's all that matters. And that gives us a sense of entitlement because we're the ones who really count and who cares what happens to anyone who opposes us. And, and so you can sort of see how there's a kind of theological basis that would set up both leaders and congregations to share in this narcissistic dance. And a lot of people get hurt. I, I'll just give one simple example of it. When I was a pastor, um, you know, we tried to do everything we can to get people more and more involved in our church. And I remember somebody told me who is a leader in our church they used to be the president of the PTA. I don't know if you use that term in Australia, but you know the, they, they were a major volunteer to help their children's public school. And they would organize parents in support of the school. And I remember thinking, I'm not sure the world is a better place if good people stop supporting their local public school so they can invest more time in their church. You know, I wondered, maybe our church is having a net we're, we're prospering as a church in a way that's hurting the community. Um, but that's the kind of question that when you're a narcissist, you would never even think of because the only thing that matters is us and what, and what we're doing. Yeah, we did an episode on narcissists because it's certainly something I, I think that, you know, it, within our uh, different communities that we've created online through the podcast and certainly our experience and conversations we've had is narcissism plays a very big role in in lots of parts of society but certainly within <laughs> yes. fundamentalist congregations so you know we we definitely connect with your reflections yeah. and the other thing that we did in that episode remember Brian was fundamentalist podcast Brian was <laughs> we talked about the idea of it being so appealing to us as young people this idea of being important this idea of being special and so we were sort of middle leaders brian mclaren we we weren't running our own congregations etc but more we were you know youth pastors and and uh, assistant pastors and that kind of thing but definitely that drew us in and there took some you know whether you want to look at it in a christian context or just a personal growth context there took some repentance on our part yeah. and you know we've been quite upfront about that as well yeah yeah. And, and th- as a result, 
people can do harmful things for what feel like the purest of motives. And then comes the moment when they start to realize they're doing harm, maybe to themselves, maybe to other people. And then they have to make a decision. Do, do we acknowledge the harm and try to step back from it? Do we, or do we just push away those second thoughts and, and dive in all, all the deeper? And, and I think that's, I'm going to guess that people who would listen to this podcast are the people who had those second thoughts and now are trying to sort out where, where do I go from here? Yeah. And I mean, it's a conclusion I think we came to as well that we thought that the vast majority of people didn't do it with ill intent. Um, yes. A lot of it's learned behavior and it's also what's expected of you. So it, you know, it really build up those frameworks and people adapt to those frameworks and that just becomes the way they do the doing, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. Yes. So Brian, your book is divided into three parts. First one being uh, why leave. Second one is why stay. And then the third one is, okay, how, you know, how do we integrate this? What do we do? Where do we go? Let's, let's start with the, with the why leave. And mm-hmm. could you just, you know, tell us some of the, the big ones that stood out to you or that, you know, that might sort of bring people in to read the book. Sure. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, the first part is called no. And, uh, do I stay Christian? No. And, um, I'll just maybe read a couple of the chapter titles. Cause I think they're pretty self-explanatory because Christianity has been vicious to its mother, which is the problem of of anti-Semitism. When you study Christian history, you find out that at the very early stage, even by the end of the first century, uh, this Jewish movement develops an anti-Jewish attitude. And it, it, it just goes haywire in the centuries that follow. I I remember uh, early in the pandemic, uh, reading an article about uh, how when pandemics spread through Europe in the Middle Ages, they would o- often blame Jews for, do- for doing it. They didn't understand germs and viruses. They wanted somebody to blame. And so they would blame the Jews. And horrible atrocities were committed against the Jews, unjustly led by churches and, and priests and so on. And uh, so uh, very serious. Um, Then the second chapter, because of Christianity's suppression of dissent, Christian uh, uh, versus Christian violence. And I talk about how uh, Christian nonconformists have been treated by their fellow Christians. And and it's uh, in fact, there was some material for that chapter that my editor said, I'm sorry, you just can't have that in this chapter. It's too gruesome. And it will, you know, it, it, you can't include. So, but I said, well, I really think it needs to be included. So we moved it to an appendix at the back. But it's, it's parts of Christian history that a lot of us don't know anything about. Um, and then in the, another chapter, I talk about Christianity's high global death toll and life toll. The, the, the combined impact of centuries of crusades and then centuries of colonialism that really is, that still have vestiges today. And then maybe I'll just mention two others because of white Christian, the white Christian old boys network, the issue of white patriarchy uh, in Christianity. And then um, I talk about um, Christianity uh, is stuck. And I talk about the, uh, a kind of toxic theology that, and it's not just the statements of the theology, but it's the assumptions beneath those statements that keep us, uh, keep us stuck in a, in a world that no longer exists. Brian, one thing that I felt when I read this book or one thing that I noticed was I felt there was in, in that section there, in that, uh, you know, no, no, I'm going to leave. One of the big reasons for people leaving or at least a barrier for keeping them from returning are the historical inaccuracies and inconsistencies in the Old and New Testaments. Mm-hmm. Um, but you didn't address that as a point. Is is that because it's a Pandora's box and it's just too big a topic? To, you know, why, why didn't you go there? Yes. Well, um, the issue of how the Bible is used, I ended up dealing with in the second section um, in the chapter on Jesus, because I talk about biblical literalism, that that really is a deep problem. But um, uh, here's the irony uh, with, with this issue, and it is a real issue, and you're absolutely right. A lot of Christians teach that Christianity is defined by its beliefs. In other words, what Christianity is, is compliance with a list of beliefs. 
Um, the irony is that's one of the teachings that a lot of us need to doubt <laughs> because Christianity could be something other than a list of beliefs. For example, it could be a way of life or it could be a set of practices or it could be a, a, a joint quest or something like that. Um, and, uh, I, I, and I guess in some ways, also, when I, I wrote the chapter about being a nonconformist, I was trying to point out that when you define the religion by beliefs, it doesn't things don't end well. So uh, when people feel that, uh, you know, they're required to believe certain things that just don't make sense, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And by the way, I'm not one to think that all the bad stuff is in the Old Testament and all the good stuff is in the New Testament. I think there's some pretty ugly stuff in both. And there's certainly a lot of stuff that can be misused in both. Uh, what I, I'm uh, inviting people to do is say that the church has told you that it it's that Christianity is defined, or some churches will tell you Christianity is defined by the beliefs that you adhere to. And I think that's one of the statements that you're allowed to question. I think, you know, leaning on that and what you've said there, Brian, is, I mean, we see this in that there's over 4,000 different, for lack of a better word, brands or expressions of, of Christianity and faith. So, you know, there's, there's so many different truths, I guess, that people hang their hat on. And then no greater is a bringer of peace than the next lot who are offering that. But what, you, what you're sort of speaking to there is, is more of an abstract, I guess, concept, concept of Christianity. Um, so if it's not all literally true, why stay at all? Mm, you know, um well, for a lot of people, if for a lot of people, that's why they leave. They just think they were told it's literally true. And so when they find out it, maybe a lot of it isn't literally true, then they just think, yeah, th this whole thing was a sham. They promised me the whole thing was literally true. And if it's not, then the whole thing is is bogus. But maybe I could make an analogy to the way I think it ought to be. Uh, I'm not saying it is this way for a lot of people, but Another way to think about it, the field of uh, the whole world of science, uh, science has often been wrong. But the thing about science is it's not defined by the list of facts that it presents at every given moment. It's actually defined by its commitment to test and seek out the truth, which includes the willingness to, to evaluate the facts it's currently proclaiming in light of new evidence. And um, so science ends up being a quest for truth rather than claiming it has all the truth. And I think this could be a very different way for Christianity to understand itself, not being the list of truths that are now figured out, but being a tradition of a quest for truth that includes within it the willingness to self-critique and to admit that we were wrong. Um, and uh, I, I remember one of the first times that this became clear to me was just, oh, I don't know, might have been 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. The Dalai Lama said, and I don't think he, I don't even think he was answering a question. I just think he made this statement. He said, if I ever found out that some of the teachings of Buddhism were untrue, I would stop teaching them. <laughs> and it was just, it's just sort of disarming to hear the leader of a religion say, my real commitment isn't to the teachings. Uh, my real commitment is to the truth. And, uh, and if I find that the truth is out of line with my teachings, my, my deep spiritual commitment requires me to be more loyal to the truth than to my, the, into what I've said in the past. I knew how you were going to come back from that question. I, I really did, because it's a different way of seeing. I mean, basically what you're saying is, let's eject fundamentalism from the way we look at Christianity. I want to give you an example. Now, I've, I've been burnt and I've been hurt. And so it takes an effort. It takes a choice. And, you know, talking about, you know, one of your pet ideas of biases to actually engage with progressive Christians like yourself and others in our, yeah. in our yeah. audience and some who I've now become really good friends with. And I, and I can understand them and understand where they're coming from. But when I meet a secular Buddhist or a, a, a non-fundamentalist Buddhist or a, a progressive Jew, I'm not offended. And I don't expect them to be literalists. And I don't yes. question them, why are you not a literalist? But when it comes to Christianity, I'm like, you know, and even you're on here, all right, Brian McLaren, what do we do if it's not literally true? Yet I don't ask those questions of other religions because I haven't had the history. I haven't had the experience. 
What would you say to that? Well, that makes perfect sense. And I, I think in some ways, Christianity has to prove itself. It has to prove itself. Like, I don't think you owe Christianity the benefit of the doubt until it proves its ability to uh, to show a commitment to truth that will make it be willing to say we were wrong about that. And in fact, not just to say it begrudgingly, but to, to say, I'm so glad that I can be part of a community that admits we, we were wrong, you know, instead of trying to minimize it, to say that's what one of the things that gives our community uh, great value. I, I, maybe I also, you'll recall, I, I had a chapter in the book where I talked about Christianity being in its infancy. And, and I think maybe one of the reasons when you're talking to a progressive Jew or Buddhist those are older religions, and in a certain sense, they have a more mature wing that is easy to find, you know. And there are still fundamentalist Jews, and there are still fundamentalist Buddhists, um, but this other wing is out there and 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 easy to find. Um, it's not so easy to find <laughs> in the Christian community. So I think you have every reason to be suspicious. Well, a day is is a thousand years, isn't it? So it's really only two <laughs> days old. That's our joke, isn't it, Brian? <laughs> what are you talking about? He's only two. He's only been gone for two days. He's coming back. <laughs> I, I think you know. For me, I, I really resonate with I, with a lot of what you've said. And my deconstruction or deconversion journey for me was really at a constancy of of daring myself to take another literal view away, until I took so many of them away that I wasn't sure what I actually had left. Um, yes. And there is, you know, it, it really was a house of cards that you whacked one out of there and it was gone. Um, the whole thing was done. So for me, I, I, I do really resonate with what you were saying. And, and I guess I came to the stage of going, well, there's nothing left because all I'd really been involved in was this fundamentalism. And if all those fundamental beliefs are fairly hollow, then see you later. Um, so for me, I identify more, you know, de definitely a humanist um, yes. is, would be my identification if I had to identify as something. And and uh, some of that is built around just, just holding on to those probably the little bits of, you know, justice and social justice that I was fortunate enough to be involved with in my Christian journey and bringing those forward as those core truths. But yes. definitely those fundamental beliefs, I think that's where the fundamental movement or fundamentalist movement loses people because as soon as you pull one or two away, um, it's really that that thread just unravels. Yes, it, it, it really does. And I think when you're raised in fundamentalism or you're converted into fundamentalism, all of the spotlight is on beliefs. You know, you, you think how different it would be if you were invited into a community and said, look, um, our great desire, our great task is learning how to be the most loving version of ourselves that we can be. Um, uh, you know, something else would be in the spotlight if that was the community that you were invited to be part of. Um, or if you were invited to say, hey, look, we're a group of people who have a diagnosis of what's wrong in the world, and we're trying to uh, address that diagnosis so that uh, the world doesn't self-destruct. Um, I suppose there would be agreement with some beliefs, but they, they would be beliefs that were central to the quest that you were on together. And this is part of the weirdness of how fundamentalism works. Um, uh, whether or not you believe the earth was created in six literal days, you know, it suddenly becomes you, you're unaccepted here if you don't believe, if you, if you don't accept that. Uh, and a whole lot of other things too. Um, so I've, I've seen how long it takes to build a house. So I have no qualms in questioning the six day literal earth build. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess a question I've often reflected on um, and I, I want to put to you is, do you think that progressive Christianity is a response that's trying to return the movement, I guess, to something that resembles that of its roots or its early days, or is it merely a way to make Christianity more palatable in a postmodern society? Um, Brian, I, I might need you to help me get back to answer your question, but I guess I want to share sort of a, a bit of a story that, that your question brings to mind. I really was devoted 
to trying to save Christianity for a lot of my life. You know, I was a pastor. I tried to develop a different kind of church that would do less harm and do more good. And in some ways, my default assumption was that Christianity was in trouble and it needed help. Um, but then I, as I don't know when this happened, but I'm thinking 15 or 20 years ago, I, I started thinking if the Christian religion could be happy and fulfilled and attracting people and everything was going great and it didn't deal with its latent racism, would I be happy with that? Um, and, and if, if Christianity was happy and the churches were full and people were fulfilled and there weren't pedophilia scandals and all the rest, and the church was not engaged in trying to save the planet from human destruction, would I be happy with that? And I realized I wouldn't. I realized that I don't think the religion is worth saving if it continue, if it continues on its current course. So I guess circling back to your question, I would imagine some progressive Christians are primarily focused on trying to save the religion by updating it and, and, and in some ways. Um, I, and I understand that and I, because I've been there. But where I feel more these days is that we're actually dealing with trying to save the earth. And we're trying to, you know, there's so much else that we're trying to save. And I think that those things are more important than a real, in fact, it's only a narcissistic religion that worries about saving itself when the world is falling apart. So, um, yeah, I, I, does that answer your question? I, I, uh, that's what sort of comes. Yeah. Yeah. I, look, I, th I think it does, which sort of leads on to, it, it, you're known as Brian McLaren, the universalist people, people will, will peg themselves on that and go, I'm a universalist like Brian McLaren. Um, Firstly, you know, you can answer it all as one, but if that is the case and the notion that there are many roads, but one mountain, ultimately there's one destination. Uh, if this is the case and Christianity is such a broken thing, you know, that the movement really, I mean, we've seen it, we've talked about it. Why is that the expression that you, I guess, continue to anchor yourself to, to adhere to? Why not Buddhism, humanism, or a plethora of other expressions? Yeah. So um, that's a question, as you know, that I try to answer in the second part of the book. Um, uh, I, I think about it. Uh, well, so maybe I should say two things. The, the first one is because I really do think there are treasures there. And I want to try to continue to savor the treasures. And, and I don't want to throw out the treasures. I think probably there's a way that people can leave any association with the Christian religion and whatever those treasures are, bring them with them. You know, I think that's certainly, uh, I think that's certainly possible. But I think about a conversation that I had, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago, almost now, shortly after September 11th, 2001. Uh, I was with a Muslim woman who, uh, a professor, and we had a conversation and she sent me an email later and she said, Brian, I'd never heard of you. I didn't know who you are. Um, but I looked up your name. I Googled your name and Islam. I Googled your name and Muhammad. And I found out that never have you spoken against my religion and never have you spoken against my prophet. But you have often spoken to try to protect Muslims from people who want to vilify us. And, um, and it was a very tender and sweet conversation. And basically what she said is, please, stay Christian so that you can convince your fellow Christians uh, not to kill us. And so there's a certain sense that I, I, I felt, you know, from her, the same thing I feel. I just got an email uh, yesterday from a rabbi friend of mine who just went to Israel, uh, Palestine, and was a witness to the Israeli defense force bulldozing a house and destroying the house of a Palestinian. And she came back and wrote this email to a, a bunch of people she knows to say, what do I do as a Jew when I see my religion uh, and, and the, the Israeli government in the name of my religion, destroying the house of a fellow human being? And, um, and you know, what I want to say to her is, you're the kind of person I hope will stay Jewish 
to keep your voice being heard because Palestinian lives are at stake and you raising your voice and inviting other Jews to raise your voice might be the only thing that can save those lives. So to me, that's part of it, you know, that this sense that um, uh, there are treasures here that can be reclaimed and there's harm here that uh, that needs to be addressed. And when you say, well, I could become Buddhist. Yeah, I could. And I have great love and respect for Buddhism, but my Buddhist friends will tell me there's big problems in Buddhism too. I, I have a dear friend who's a Buddhist teacher and here in the United States. And she says, look, American Buddhism is one of the, uh, you know, it's almost all white and it has brings all kinds of the same problems that white Christianity has, you know? And, um, so every place you go, it ends up there's trouble. And uh, so I guess my hope is to be, you know, that, and I'm not saying other people should do this, but when you ask me why I'm doing what I'm doing, that would be, uh, that would be part of the, the answer. One of the things that I noticed reading your book, like you, you mentioned Ikar, the, the Jewish yes. um, synagogue in LA. Um, and forgive me, I've forgotten the name of the, um, the Muslim community, but you talk about these sort of progressive communities that resemble yours. And, and I, I have dabbled with Ikar. I've, you know, yes. read some of their stuff and listened to their podcasts and watched, um, watched their sermons on Facebook Live. And, um, and, and there's, a, there's very much a resonance with that and some of the secular Buddhism and, and yourself and, um, and, and Richard Rohr and, and this, this kind of crowd. I mean, you guys seem to be very much saying the same thing, but with different frameworks. And that's where I, I, I guess I come back and say, are you saying to people that there's a heart of something here that's happening in Christianity or, or the, this kind of Christianity or this kind of Judaism or this kind of Islam or this kind of Buddhism that is the same, that sort of Thomas Merton, you know, meditation, quietness, which you get from Richard Rohr as well. That yes. You guys all seem to be saying the same thing. Are, are you welcoming people to find your own path or are you saying Christianity is the, the best of these? No. Yeah. So um, f- first of all, when you say, if anyone says Christianity is the best of these, and then you point out what Christians are actually doing in the world, it's just not true. And when you look across these first 2000 years of history, I, I'm not sure if any religion has has participated in anything as criminal as uh, 500 years of colonialism. Uh, and so, you know, I, I definitely would not be saying that, but, um, and I wouldn't even be say, saying exactly that we're all saying the same thing, but I would say, I think you're right, that what we're doing when you, it seems there's a way of going to the heart of Judaism. The way I say it in the book, you go to the heart of a tradition and you sort of fall through a trap door. <laughs> and when you get to the bottom uh, of that descent, you find out, your Jewish friend is there and your Muslim friend is there and your Buddhist friend is there, that there is this sort of common core um, that you're, you're brought to. Uh, and, and part of that core, here's what's really interesting. It's a core of not we have the right teachings. It's a core of we're facing mysteries that are too deep for words. And it's a core of not that we're better than anybody else, but that we're all a mess and we're trying to figure out how to live in, in that uh, reality. And, and so, uh, so yeah, if, if you're asking, uh, you know, do I, am I trying to say to people, you better stay Christian or you're going to go to hell or you better, or if you're not a Christian, you can't be a good person. No, I'm not saying anything like that. Yeah. And, and my, I sort of, I, I like what the Dalai Lama says. A, a friend of mine uh, who's Muslim had a private meeting with the Dalai Lama some years ago, and he said, I want to become a Buddhist. And and Dalai Lama said, why do you want to become a Buddhist? He says, because Buddhism is the religion of compassion, and I think only compassion can save the world. And the Dalai Lama said something like, look, I'm a Tibetan Buddhist and you're not Tibetan, so I can't help you. But my advice to you is don't become a Buddhist, just be a compassionate Muslim. The world needs more compassionate Muslims. And 
and that's kind of, you know, I, I think that's sort of the, the feeling I have, but you know, when people leave a tradition, they have every good reason I'm sure to leave that tradition, but then they wake up the next day and say, what kind of person do I want to be? And that's the question that I think takes us all where we, where we need to go. I think sometimes the fear in stepping out of those places is that you've got nowhere else to go. Where do I go next? Who will accept me? And one thing that Troy and I often speak about is one of the things that we really valued from our time in Christianity and churches was community. Yes. Was the ability to feel accepted, feel loved. No, it wasn't perfect. Um, but it gave us a place and stepping out of that scary. And I liken it to, um, you know, I, I, I'm privileged enough to, to lead an organisation that works with people who've experienced family violence, sexual abuse, um, and many, many other things that have damaged them to the core. And those atrocities have been done against them by those who were the closest to them, those who they should have trusted. And for them to even leave that damaged environment, a lot of our help is to hey, there are other places. There are places yeah. that you can be safe. There's there's ways for you to leave. There's ways for you to be supported. And, uh, and I think what you've done by staying, it's hard. It's not, it's not, you've, you've taken a hard road. You've gone, this is something that I, that I dearly identify with and I dearly care about and it's broken. In fact, it is really shit. And a lot of the things it does to people are worse than uh, many other things, but you've decided to stay. So that, that, you know, it's, it's admirable. And obviously a lot of the things that you, you have the resources, the ability, the connection, the community to, to be able to stay and be able to try and make a better place. What, what about those people that I guess, what would you say to those people that are in there and going, I hate this. This is not working for me. Where do I go? What are your suggestions for those people? Yeah. Well, look, it, it's so your analogy to a, 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 a family where there's physical or, or emotional or sexual abuse, you know, you, you have to get out when you, when you're, when you're a part of a system like that, you need, you deserve safety and you need to get away. Um, but as you say, sometimes people leave and, and now they feel totally adrift, totally alone. Uh, so much like in a domestic violence situation where somebody says, this is my home. If I leave here, where do I go? And they need somebody to give them shelter. And I'm going to guess that's why you guys do this podcast. You, you know how lonely that can be and you're creating space for people um, to say you're not alone. And, and uh, w- w- you know, there are a lot of us who've, who've been uh, in this journey. So, I think uh, I think this is the work that a lot of us are trying to do in different ways. And religion is sort of interesting, in, especially in countries that have religious diversity and religious freedom, because then you at least have the freedom to leave. You know, there are some people who don't have that freedom. Uh, politically, uh, there's no option. Um, and some people, even where they have the freedom... Uh, the strings that are attached to religious involvement are so great. When my book Faith After Doubt came out, I, I'm not going to mention the religion, but it's not a, a traditionally Christian religion, but a whole group of people who were part of a certain religious community read that book, and they asked me if I would be part of a private uh, Zoom group with them to just try to help them process what they were going through. And they told me, if we leave our religion, if we express a doubt about our religion, we have to leave our, our, our children can't go to the schools they go to. Um, people will stop doing business with our business, our family business. We literally have to move to an, uh, our, our family will disown us. We have to move to another state, get another job, go to new schools, sell our home, find a new home. And, and this was the reality that they faced. So the difficulty of this can really, really be great. And, and this is where we, we, yeah, we just need, it's funny, isn't it? It's like being a refugee. It's like being a religious refugee and you might not need to cross a physical border, but you need to cross a social border where there's some friendly people on the other side um, who will, who will provide you safety and, and a place to stay. 
That's a term that we use all the time. Uh, you know, we talk about refugees from the Assemblies of God or Pentecostal refugees, and that's really what a, you know our, our podcast is about, and really what it, who it's for, and a large you know group of our of our audience totally. But they've landed in different places. You know, some have landed in progressive Christian camps, some have landed in you know nuns and duns, and others have have landed in Jewish communities, etc. It's it, people have really gone into all different places, and we don't make it a a trip that you know you have to be an angry atheist or you have to be a a progressive Christian. We just we just don't want to go there. We want to let people land where they want to land. Now, the third part of your book, and we're coming to the end of time, so we're, we're not asking you to go too deep into this, but the third part of your book is whatever you decide, let's integrate this. You know, what you called it solidarity is this fourth stage. Tell us about that. What, what is it that you're wanting people to, to come to? Because I think in that we really resonate with you yes. that whatever you choose, there is hope, there is some sort of peace. Yes. And really, I think we've been demonstrating that in, in this conversation, this sense that um, what kind of world do we want to make uh, and uh, how do we want to treat each other? Um, yeah. In that fourth se- section, I, I, or third section, I talk about um, a number of things that I just think are part of the times that we live in, that if we, that anyone who has been through the trauma of being Christian and leaving or through the trauma of being Christian and not being able to stay Christian in that way and having to become a different kind of Christian. Anybody who's been through that kind of moral uh, self-examination and that kind of relational disjuncture, if not trauma, uh, you have a moral sensibility. Um, So how do you want to live with other people? How do you want to live with yourself? How do you want to live with the earth? And um, these, in, in a sense, it becomes uh, w- whether you leave the group that you were part of who gave you all of these answers before, now you've got to figure them out yourself, or whether you stay, but you say, I'm not staying on the terms uh, that were given to me. In a sense, we have the freedom now to say, what does my deepest heart? What does my deepest conscience, what does the deepest wisdom I have access to lead me to do in the world? How do I want to live? What kind of a human being do I want to be? And in some ways, this is one of the real problems with labels, whether it's Christian, Buddhist, atheist, Jew, or whatever. The label creates an in-group that might not necessarily ask what kind of a human being you want to be. (laughs) In other words, you've checked off this in-group and now you're okay. Um, Whereas maybe, no, that kind of security might not be the best for us to become uh, uh, the kind of people we need to be. Thanks, Brian. We do appreciate your um, your candidness, I guess, with these questions, but also just your honesty and, and your ability to reflect on it. It's something we we really love. We, we definitely are coming to the end, but a question I guess we've got for you is what do you see as the future of Christianity? It, you know, is it something that will die out as secular, secularization of society continues? What will it look like? I mean, if, even if you cast your mind back 10, 20, 30 years, Christianity is looking very, very different and it's yeah. definitely shaping up in ways that we we certainly haven't seen it. It, it often reflects society and intensifies society. Um, but how will it look going forward and will it exist? Yeah, I, I think that we will see, as I said before, ugly forms of Christianity become uglier than they've been. Um, and... If I could, you know, wave a magic wand and stop that, I would. But I, I don't think we can stop it. I think the the wheels are in motion. I used to be afraid that Christianity would die out. I'm now far more afraid that ugly forms of Christianity will have a resurgence and team up with other forms of fundamentalism that we talked about before. So I think that will happen. And that sort of then presents the challenge to the rest of us. How do we provide an alternative? That, that's built on better values and that is built on commitment to uh, learning and truth and wisdom and, and maturity and so on. So, uh, but I do think um, that the uglier some things get, the more beautiful other 
the, the uglier some people go, the, the, the more beautiful other people will go. And, uh, I, and, and I think that's not only true in Christianity or Judaism or Islam. I think it's true in Australia and America and, and the UK and Russia and Ukraine. In other words, we're facing the same problem. Uh, in in all these different facets of life. And I suppose one of my hopes, Brian, is that the people who are trying to build a better world will uh, will understand how much they have in common with each other and find ways to work together uh, and and not require the same kind of sameness that fundamentalists require, but will in some way be able to hold diversity. Uh, as we move forward in in that pursuit of the common good, Brian, thank you so much for being a part of this today. It's it's been awesome. Uh, I got to tell you, I'm I'm feeling good. I really am. I was wondering how much I was going to trigger. We had Philip Yancey on uh, more recently, and we, we both triggered after that one. So thank you. This has been really <laughs> nice. I do want to remind people of your book, Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned, which is pretty much a good way to, to uh, label our audience. Um, and also the, the, the first book, um, Faith After Doubt, I think is also worth worth uh, grabbing for you know and, and recommending. I want to recommend that to our audience. So thank you for writing these two books. Thank you for taking time to come in and talk to a couple of Aussies halfway around the world. We really appreciate you being here. Well, I and can I just say again, what a beautiful thing you guys are doing, trying to help people get an off ramp from something that's hurting them and maybe hurting other people too. And so please keep up the good work. I'm very honored that you invited me. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Brian. Really appreciate it.